You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For May 16th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In previous episodes of this show, we've talked about some of the things we can do to overcome some of the technical and economic limits that make it difficult to integrate more renewable power on the grid. Things like more interstate transmission, as we discussed with Christopher Clack in episode 29, or using flexible loads like electric vehicles to absorb more renewable power when the grid doesn't need it, as we discussed with Matthew Klippenstein in episode 15, or shifting the energy consumption of buildings to hours when renewables are really producing and cheap, as we discussed with Sarah Bell in episode 60. But there is another way that we haven't yet discussed, and that's expanding the balancing area, the boundaries within which a system operator tries to keep supply and demand in balance. There's a ripe opportunity for this approach in the American West, where 13 U.S. states, plus parts of Canada and Mexico, currently maintain 38 separate balancing areas. Under this arrangement, with a few exceptions, the individual balancing areas cannot produce more renewable electricity than they can use within their own borders, nor can they import power when their own production is insufficient, resulting in a relatively inefficient and redundant set of generators with less renewable production than might be possible within a balancing area that covered a larger territory. To capture this opportunity, California is now exploring expanding its wholesale grid to include the other 37 balancing areas in order to increase the flow of reliable, affordable, and renewable power across the West. This shift to a regional independent system operator, or ISO, would also expand resource flexibility, improve transmission planning and grid reliability, and promote clean energy. Plus, it would enable the other states to take advantage of the California ISO's state-of-the-art technology to coordinate and optimize electric systems across the western states and develop one clean, reliable, and efficient grid. But this is a very complex undertaking, and there are a lot of pros and cons to consider, with reasonable people who support energy transition both for and against the idea. So it makes sense to consider the various issues carefully. And thanks to the recommendations of subscriber Nicola Peel Moilter, if I've pronounced that right, I have finally found an excellent guest to walk us through them. Laura Wisland is the Senior Manager for Western States Energy at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where she focuses on developing state policies that will effectively increase the amount of renewable energy used in Western states, providing technical and policy analysis to legislative and regulatory agencies to guide the integration of high levels of renewable energy onto electricity systems. She's an expert on the Western grid regionalization, and it's a privilege to have her on the show. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll offer yet another astonishing update in the ongoing debacle that is the failed VC summer nuclear plant in South Carolina, consider the implications of a new study on the melting of underwater ice in Antarctica, and ponder the ever-worsening outlook for U.S. coal plants. But first, our conversation with Laura Wisland, recorded March 29, 2018. 
So let's bring her to the conversation now. Welcome, Laura, to the Energy Transition Show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to be here. I'm really excited to have you. So this is a really complicated topic. And so I figure I'll just start by laying out some of the facts step by step. And then we can kind of get into the issues around governance and market effects and so on. Does that sound fair? Sounds good to me. All right. Okay. So to begin with, in the U.S., in the lower 48 states, there are three major independent power grids. There's the Eastern Interconnection, the Western Interconnection, and Texas. The Western Interconnection includes Washington, Oregon, California, Idaho, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, Wyoming, Colorado, most of Montana, and Mexico, and some tiny little sections of Texas and South Dakota. Beyond the lower 48, the Western Interconnection also includes British Columbia and Alberta and Canada, and to the south, the northern part of Baja, Mexico. Now, currently, power in the Western Interconnection is managed by 38 separate balancing authorities, each of which is responsible for keeping supply and demand in balance within their territories. And this is actually in stark contrast to the Eastern Interconnection, where there are just four system operators responsible for balancing most of that system, and in Texas, where there's just one. And the whole interconnection is managed by the Western Electricity Coordinating Council, or WEC. Now, the 38 independent balancing authorities in the Western Interconnection don't participate in a common competitive market, and there are some unfortunate consequences of this, which is what we're here to discuss today. Now, currently, the only competitive market in the Western Interconnection is the California Independent System Operator, or CAISO. The Western Grid Regionalization Proposal, under consideration now, would expand CAISO into a regional ISO, a regional independent system operator, which would run a common wholesale market, including the other 37 balancing authorities. And this would allow a number of good things to happen. But there are also some pros and cons to consider here, very sensible ones on both sides, and actually some very reasonable people taking different sides of the proposal. So before I go any farther, am I on the right track? So far, so good? Yeah, that's a really good overview. The only very slight modification I'll make to the way you frame this is that this isn't simply the Cal ISO subsuming additional BAs. This would be a complete overhaul of the way the current governance structure is put together, which right now the Cal ISO governing board is appointed by the governor of California. They're all political appointees. And so naturally a Western ISO would be representing interests of Western balancing authorities and the governance structure would need to change. It would no longer be the Cal ISO. It would be a Western ISO. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, it's a governance point there. Okay, good. All right. So let's start with some of the benefits of this proposal, because I think, you know, obviously that's why we're talking about it. So the main reason for doing this, as I understand it, is that it expands the market for essentially everyone. So Wyoming would be able to sell more of its abundant and cheap wind power to other states across the West. Arizona would be able to sell more of its abundant and cheap solar power. California can export more of its excess solar power and so on. So how does this plan effectuate that? Or to put it another way, what are the current market barriers that prevent that? Sure. So before I get into the specific benefits of this proposal, I just want to take a step back and talk about why this matters to groups like Union of Concerned Scientists. Okay. So UCS believes that climate change is one of the biggest threats to the health and safety of our environment, our economy, and our general well-being. Bunch and of that. Hippies. 
<laughs> a bunch of scientists, actually. <laughs> and in order to avoid some of the most negative consequences of climate change, we obviously need to transition away from the use of fossil fuels across all sectors of our economy. And as I'm sure listeners know, we're going to need a lot, a lot of renewable energy to provide us an alternative to the coal, natural gas, and petroleum-based sources of energy we're using today. So the electricity yeah. sector has a very large role to play in this clean energy transformation. And so for UCS, thinking about a regional energy market is all about doing what we can to move as quickly as possible to bring online large quantities of renewables in a way that sets a positive example for other states and countries to follow. And so what I mean by that is making sure that this clean energy transition happens in a way that ensures grid reliability. This is not going to be successful if the lights go out and keeps costs as low as possible. So in my mind, the most important thing we can do to integrate large quantities of renewables is increase the flexibility of the system and create more opportunities for grid operators to shift resources around to meet the changing needs of the grid. Right. And we think that a Western regional energy market helps a lot with this because it does three things. It first lowers transactional hurdles and makes it easier for grid operators to access the flexible generation from a larger pool of resources, which makes it easier to meet electricity demands when renewables are not as plentiful. Right. Number two, it helps expand options for where renewables can be built, which is good for grid integration because the more geographic diversity we have, the better. And a regional grid also helps California access a larger energy market to absorb all the solar that we've been building and generating that we can't necessarily consume or it's not cost effective to store. So you mentioned the 38 balancing authorities in the West. This fragmentation of the Western markets is a huge barrier to a more efficient exchange of electricity across a wider area. The more entities that can join a single clearinghouse that can optimize dispatch of the system, the more efficient the system becomes and the more tools we'll have at our disposal to meet the changing needs of the grid. All right. Now, that makes perfectly good sense from a conceptual standpoint, but I guess I'm not super clear on where's the impediment between various generators and utilities who would buy that power being able to participate across these 38 balancing areas. I mean, is there just no mechanism for there to be a market? No, I mean, there are bilateral transactions right now. So, yeah. you know, California gets about 30% of its electricity from imports. So it is right. happening today. It's just that when you're making a transaction between two balancing authorities, there are costs associated with that that wouldn't be there if that transaction hurdle didn't exist. And also, there's just inefficiencies in the system. And so there's a cost benefit to better coordination because, and we can get into this a little bit down the road, but in order to show reliability, we have to have redundancy on the system. But when you have 38 different entities spending time and money to balance supply and demand, there is going to be some overabundance of resources that are procured in order to do that. We can accomplish yeah. the same goal with less resources and less transactions if we're working better together. Right. Yeah, I understand that. I just wanted to kind of address that point about there being existing bilateral 
contracts, which do allow the buying and selling of power across these different 38 balancing areas. So it's not like it's impossible today, but with the larger regionalized ISO, it would be more of a unified market and there would be less friction. Exactly. Okay. So a number of these balancing authorities, as we were just saying, they already participate actually in what's called the Western Energy Imbalance Market, or EIM, which is managed by CAISO. The EIM is what's called a real-time market, which means it adjusts supply and demand every five minutes and covers nearly half of the WEC, as it turns out. And this EIM has already demonstrated its value by saving customers over $254 million since it started in November 2014. And it reduced greenhouse gas emissions across the EIM as well. So if we already have the EIM, why do we need a regional ISO? Like, what's the big additional benefit or value add of the regional ISO? So the EIM is really just the tip of the iceberg. Like you say, it's had some really meaningful benefits for electricity customers, but it's just capturing the efficiencies of doing a better job sharing resources in the five-minute market. So imagine how much more efficient we could be if we could actually plan to share these resources a day ahead. No one right now is deciding to not turn on a gas plant somewhere else in the West because they can instead plan to buy cheap solar from California tomorrow. You need to have a day ahead market to get those types of benefits. So the EIM is providing some of that in the five minute, but we can just get so much more if we extend it to the day ahead. Gotcha. Okay. And are there like other important tranches of the market that we should think about? Like, are there other markets that would suddenly be enabled by the Western regionalized grid? Well, yeah. I mean, so the ISO right now operates a day-ahead energy market, but then they're actually scheduling every 15 minutes. So there's subsets where the schedule is being tweaked within the hour that Mm. presumably would occur in a Western ISO. Okay. Okay. So in addition to enlarging the market for everyone, it would also optimize the whole interconnection, as you were saying a moment ago, and really make it more efficient. Because right now, each of the 38 balancing areas has to keep supply and demand in balance at all times within its own little territory. So as a result, they all really wind up with really more reserve margin than would be needed if they could rely on imports. And it means that they wind up with less renewable generation in their areas than they might have if they could export more power instead of curtailing it because they can't use it themselves. So do we have any idea how to quantify this opportunity? Like, how much more efficient would it be? Or how much more effective new capacity could it bring into the whole system? Yeah, so we have a couple data points on that. I think first, We should start with the EIM and the money that it's already saved consumers and what it's been able to do with greenhouse gases and realize that, you know, those benefits are just a fraction. That's just a five minute market. But then in addition, in 2016, the Cal ISO did a study to quantify the benefits of a Western regional energy market to California and found that it could save California ratepayers up to $1.5 billion dollars a year in 2030 and reduce greenhouse gas emissions by about eight to 10 percent. So that's meaningful. I will say that, you know, models are not a crystal ball. And these numbers that I just cited from the Cal ISO study came from scenarios that assumed most of the balancing authorities in the WEC would be part of a regional market. And in reality, things are probably going to start slower than that. Not everybody's going to jump in the swimming pool at the same time. So I would think benefits would start smaller than that and grow over time as more and more entities joined 
kind of like what we've been seeing with the EIM, where you know it started in 2014, and since then, one to two new participants have joined per year. You know, this is an interesting point that hadn't really occurred to me, the mechanism of building this up. It's not like the whole thing has to be put into place in one fell swoop. Like each of the 38 balancing authorities can join it independently and voluntarily whenever they want to, or how does it going to work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the reason why California is having this discussion is because we see a lot of benefit to enhanced coordination. And also, the way the Cal ISO structure is structured right now, are we need to pass legislation in order to enable the current governance structure, which, like I said before, is five governing board members appointed by the governor of California. We need to change that structure, presumably before anyone would be interested in joining up with us in a regional ISO. But this process that we're going through to think about okay, what would be the criteria we would want to have in place if we were to move to a Western ISO? We're just kind of laying the groundwork this year. And then other entities need to come to the table and say, we're interested in this proposal. And that's pretty much what happened with the EIM. It started with Cal ISO and Pacificor saying, we see some benefit here. We're going to get together and make this happen. But then other balancing authorities watched from the sidelines, and once they saw that there was benefit, then they joined later. So the same type of thing would happen with the Western Dayhead market. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes, with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. It seems that with every episode of this podcast, there is another newsworthy development about the nuclear and clean coal debacles we covered in episode 62. This time, it's the revelation from late March that a former vice president at SCANA, the majority owner utility of the failed VC Summer nuclear plant in South Carolina, became a whistleblower way back in early 2016, more than a year before the plant was halted and long before the extent of the plant's troubles were publicly known. 
In an amazing five-minute voicemail, which you can listen to at the link in the show notes, she accuses the company's executive management of breaking numerous laws, mismanaging the project, and hiding key facts about the project schedule in order to prop up the company's earnings and secure their own bonuses. And now it's just one more detail amidst a slew of lawsuits and criminal investigations swirling around the plant. Item 2. But wait, there's more about the VC Summer Nuclear Plant. In early April, the South Carolina House voted 104 to 7 to give Governor... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. Thank you.